Listener Production. Automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I've done a little road trip for this episode from Melbourne, where I've been working, to Albury on the New South Wales Victorian border. It's home for Brad Jones and his BJR or Brad Jones Racing Supercars team, which has entries in all tiers of the sport and has occupied a few buildings in the little cul de sac that has been home for this operation now for decades. While most teams are either in Brisbane, the Gold Coast, or Melbourne, the Jones boys made the rural setting work. And there's a great family culture that is a real strength of this setup. It stems from the humble beginnings with Brad and his brother Kim, who only stepped away from the business in relatively recent time. Kim still loves racing and we'll chat to him for the podcast at some stage down the track. His son Andy has impressed on the broadcasting side when I've worked with him and has driven successfully for this squad too. But it's Brad who's the focus of today's edition of The Garage. Many of you have requested this one, so I'm really pleased that we can finally do it and record it in person in the boardroom at the race shop. We'll chat about he and Kim their early days, the big names that came around for post-race barbecues when they were growing up thanks to their dad's deep connection with the sport, making ends meet as Brad tried to carve a career behind the wheel, memories of the great Peter Brock, the late Jason Richards, his close friendship with Hall of Famer Neil Crompton, a cool memory with Barry Sheen, a car you may not expect that he is especially proud to have driven, Bit of NASCAR, Oscar, super touring in those awesome Audis, his son Macaulay's own career, and we'll tackle some of your questions. Because there are so many, I tried to wrap them up generically in the chat. We couldn't get to all of them, but I'm very grateful for the messages. And I'm sorry if I didn't thank you personally as the conversation unfolded for those questions. Some stories you may have heard before. Others, I'm glad we unearthed or went a little deeper on full credit to Brad for sharing. I've known him since my first major commercial TV jobs when I covered the two-litre series for Channel 10. He's always had a great sense of humour and a terrific way with words. That rapport and his animated style of conversation oozes through the microphone to make this one of our most memorable episodes, and I'm very proud to have helped him share it. But I know... There are so many more tales tucked away. What a life. This special episode is brought to you by a mutual supercars partner in Pizza Hut. We begin with early life around the twin towns, Albury and Wodonga, on either side of the Murray River and the legendary Hume Weir Circuit. And the stars that would drop round once racing was done to the Jones house for a barbecue. My life in, in car racing started very early on. My dad, um, it would be remiss of me not to tell a little story about him. He was um, he came from Holbrook originally, and he was into horse riding and you know used to ride in rodeos and things. And and um, and but when he was sixteen, he caught polio, and he went to the Aubrey Grammar School here. In those days, all the roads were dirt, and so um, with polio sufferers in those days, they 
immediately put them in plaster. And so they took him to the Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney and they put him in plaster from his hips to his ankles and they left him there for two years. And then a lady came along uh, named Sister Kenny uh, who, who helped revolutionise the treatment of polio sufferers. And um, so she picked Dad because he was quite a... Um, um, tough example and young and she cut the plaster off him. I can remember him telling me she used to tie his calves to the front of a wheelchair and he had to hold himself up with his arms until he couldn't anymore and then slowly as he ran out of strength it would start the legs moving again and then she started physio so in the end he walked with a caliper on on one leg and a spring to keep his foot up on the other and and um, um, then when he finally came back to Warbury um, or Holbrook he was couldn't obviously ride a horse or or do any of that stuff, and he he'd lost interest in that a little bit. But had a love affair with cars, and so um, his best friend Jack Holm um, built him a car and and um, with hand controls. And so Dad, you know, drove that thing around. It was just a you know my brother could tell you more about it, but but it's um, it was it was a car they built up, and then his dad bought him a, a, a TFMG, and and Dad. Then Kim came along and then I came along and um, Dad um, was the president of the car club in Albury for, um, for 16 or 18 years or something. And, and so uh, he would, we'd be all the working bees and we'd be out the track. And as you said, um, you know, Bob Jane was, was my godfather or our godfather. And, and um, you know, he would, when he came to Albury for the team arts, he'd stay at our house and Brian Thompson would do the same thing. And on a Saturday night of a race meeting, um, we go to the local television uh, station, which is called AMV4, but it's prime now, and they'd host, Dad would host, so he'd stand there with a microphone and he'd interview the, the, the drivers, so they'd push in you know, Norm Beachy and Brian Thompson and Bob Jane and Dad would interview the three of them, they'd go to an ad break, they'd push them out, and then they'd push in three FJs and push them out after that and open wheelers and... And so, you know, we were, Kim and I were immersed in, in motor racing since, since we were little kids. And, and then after that show finished, everyone would come back to our place for a barbecue. And so uh, there'd be, you know, lots of motorsport people lurking around our house. And then Sunday we'd get up and go to the races. And, and uh, it, was a, it was amazing uh, a way to, to be involved in in car racing and and those personalities and even to this day you know have a great relationship with brian thompson i haven't seen tomo for a while but peter fowler who built that car i mean you know obviously bob jane i had a lot to do with over my life and and um you know bob used to have a holiday home down at mulwala and we used to go down there lots of weekends during the year and christmas and um you know it was it was quite quite amazing when you when you look back at it do you look back and think a little bit surreal because maybe it was normalized for you then it was you, you know these people would come around they obviously knew your dad and respected him and you know now when you think about it if you tried to draw a modern parallel that's pretty awesome like, isn't it yeah it's all a bit it's, it's mm. a little bit crazy my dad was a car salesman mm. and and so uh, he would. Uh, he started off selling used cars, and then he ended up with his own and car yard, which was with Phil Jones Motors. And then, then he went broke just in time for me and Kim to want to start racing cars, and 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 so that wasn't handy. But um, it, it was it was amazing when when you, we were doing the throwbacks in supercars. Uh, a lot of people were going back and doing cars that the company ran. But Kim and I decided. 
to go back and do our heroes cars. And so, so we we did Norm Beaches, you know, and we did did the Neptune car, we did the Chevy Nova, we did the um, we did the um, uh, ter- not the Tirana, the Monaro, all the cool cars that we used to love when had we were kids, with, and we yeah. had a connection with them. Mm-hmm. We did Bob Jane, and and um, you know we we were going to do Brian Thompson next, and so we had a you know, really clear picture. Of, of our youth and what was great and and what was difficult when we when we went back and started looking through pictures because you know Bob used to paint his cars orange I didn't want to, we we didn't really want to run three orange cars so I went back and was looking at all these photos and I I found a picture with um, Spencer Martin in an elfin at Hume Weir and the old dummy grid and in the background was a um, blue EH with a white roof, white roof and I remember that because my dad had one mm-hmm. and then there was this little kid inside the car and it looked like he locked his slightly older brother outside the car <laughs> and clearly that's me and Kim <laughs> and then my dad's standing at the back a bit and it's, you know that was it that was for us that was growing up it was it was uh, it was amazing time and as you said you never you know I you never think about it too much. I can remember our next door neighbour. Uh, his name was Stephen Morcombe, and he started racing cars late in life and ended up with a Formula Two car. But they did an interview in Auto Action with him and said, you know, what was one of the earliest memories of motorsport? And he said he can remember waking up one morning and looking out his window and seeing a dragster in his next door neighbour's yard, <laughs> and and that was in uh, under the carport our place. It was Ash Marshall's dragster, awesome. um, who who um, uh, you know was Australian champion at the time, and he's a friend of my dad's, and they were going through, and so they backed the dragster into the under the carport and left it there for the night and stayed the night at our house, and and away they went. So it was. Yeah, it was, you know, crazy times. You take it for granted when you're a kid. It doesn't really mean that much to you, but I've got a poster on the wall in my office. I don't have much stuff in, in my office, to be honest. There's a few key photos. I've got I've got one of Jason Richards. I've got one of Jason Bright when we first won our championship. I've got two of me driving the R8 Audi at... At Adelaide, Adelaide yeah. and then I've got a huge picture of uh, a Hume Weir poster, um, genuine poster that that I got from the Albury Car Club, and and I can remember as a kid having that exact same poster on the wall in my bedroom. They were just all covered in motorsport stuff, and so um, yeah, so it was you know it, it was an amazing uh, youth. When was the for- first foray for you as far as competition was concerned? And, and am I right in saying, because I reckon he's recounted it in the podcast chat we've had, it was two wheels and dirt bikes and sort of early recollections of Crompo. Is that right? Have I got that right? Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, really, Kim and I were racing stuff f- from the minute we started. You know, we started with slot cars <laughs> and, and they had a big slot car track here and we used to, you know, have a lunchbox with, you know, three or four slot cars in and we'd go down there and, and then after that was push bikes. And then motorbikes, and as you said, raced against Crompton, and then then into cars. So you know, Kim Kim got into racing cars before me. So we got a couple of Elfin Elfins off Bob Jane, which were the part of the Frank Gardner Driving School. He sent them up to Dad, and Kim, as he does, beautifully uh, restored his, and mine just sort of sat there because I still wanted to race motorbikes for a living, and um, and then. Uh, um, the bike thing didn't really work out for me. I was, you know, dad went broke and I'd been racing bikes a lot since I was a kid and I just needed a break from it really. And, and um, but you look back, 
in time and think to yourself, you know, a lot of the guys I was racing against, Robbie Phyllis and Graham Geddes and those guys were all off road racing and doing really well. And I had a ride on Kim's TZ one day and didn't really like it much. And, and um, but, but you know, another day we went down to Winton with a go-kart and one of my um, short circuit bikes on slicks and, and that was a different kettle of fish. But, um, you know, I was, I was lucky enough. I mean, it's a bit of a long story, but I, I just ended up in car racing as well. Did you, were you any good at school? And when did the the foray into, because you're a smash repairer, I think, is that right, by, by trade? What did you do when you first left school? Come on. Uh, well, I was going to be a professional motocross rider and, and I can remember I didn't realise my dad was going broke. And I wandered in there one day and he said, um, what are you doing? You know, I was 16 or something. And I said, oh, I... It's it's too hot to train, Dad. And and he said, "Well, you're not serious about it. We'll get you a job." And I went, "What?" <laughs> and, and then he rang up. And he said, "What do you want to be?" And I went, oh, "I don't know, a motocross rider." And he said, "No, no. What else would you be?" And I went, oh, "I don't know, maybe a sign writer or a spray painter." So he rang a sign writer, uh, and he said no. And then he rang a panel shop and told him he'd get all Dad's used car work. And like 30 seconds later, I was I had a job, so I'm a spray painter by trade. But going back to school. Um, no, I was a terrible student, really. Um, maths was about the only thing that interested me. I had a teacher I liked, and so I was in a reasonable, you know, I think it was in three or four from four, maybe, was a in those days, you know, based on yeah, how intelligent you were, depended on what number you were represented in class. It's not like now where everyone that competes gets a ribbon. Yes. Uh, you know, you were very, very segregated based on how unintelligent or intelligent you seemed to be at the time. So I was in four um, for, for maths, but like seven for English. I hated my English teacher. And, and um, so, and I hardly ever went to school. So I was, uh, Mondays, I was still sore and tired from racing on the weekend and you know Fridays I was sort of going away racing and you know it never I didn't like sport much and I was always you know instead of doing sport I'd be out training on my push bike so so I didn't end up with a school certificate I didn't end up with any sort of you know uh, acknowledgement that I'd even been to school really so it's crazy and then the funny thing was when I was racing cars and starting to do well um, Mr Emerson who is my science teacher um, called me one day and said um We'd like you to come down. This is when my kids were at school. Uh, we'd like you to come down and, and talk to the kids here about, um, you know, chasing your dreams and... Determination. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, all that yeah. sort of stuff, which yeah. made me really, really laugh because there was plenty of teachers that didn't think <laughs> I'd go much further than the local jail. So uh, I can remember he, he said, you know, I said, how long do you want me to talk? And he goes, 10 minutes. So an hour um, later, <laughs> yeah, and then I I said okay I can do it. What day is it? And I said look I don't want to embarrass my kids. And he goes oh no no, no they'll love it. And I went oh, I'm not sure they will, but I'll talk to them as long as they're okay with it. I'll I'll come and do it. So then they were okay with it. And he said it's at the principal's office. And I said okay. He goes you know where that is? And I sure said is do. it moved? <laughs> <laughs> and he went no. And I went I reckon I can find it without too much trouble. I spent a lot of time in there. So yeah. So it's funny how things work out. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, obviously, being street smart hmm. in life really counts for a lot. I mean, I'm—I really wish I'd have paid more attention in English uh, as well as maths because I think they're the two things you need to get through life. But, but you know, it, it was—it was an interesting way of growing up. Is it a combination of everything then, like your, your dad's determination that you've recounted there, some of the street smarts that you've you've learnt along the way? Are these all the the Brad Jones? 
uh, facets, you know, the university of your life that have helped you to, to sort of get to this point, running four cars and a, and a race team and so on? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, look, I just love cars, you mm. know, and, and my brother, we're, he's no different really. I mean, mm. he's different in lots of ways to me, but but my dad would um, ring up on a on a – or someone would ring him and want to rent the Hume Weir and he'd go, okay, I can come out in the afternoon. I mean, this guy turned up in this – brand new elf and he'd driven over from Adelaide and he, and, uh, he wanted to run around the Hume Weir. I don't know why. So he turns up with his beautiful car. My dad went and got me out of school at lunchtime and, and so he said to him, okay, I'm paralysed. Bradley's only 14, so uh, don't do anything stupid because we're not going to be much help to you. And so, and so I'd just sit in the car and talk to dad and these guys would drive these cars around. This particular guy did one lap and uh, I remember... He, went, he got, came out of scrub corner, went down the back straight, flat out in this thing. And I can remember my dad looking across the, to me and going, oh, shit. And uh, next thing is, boom, 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 boom. We get around and there's this guy sitting in the tub and all the wheels are, are gone. And, and my old man, man, he ripped into him. He's like, what were you thinking? thinking. <laughs> so then I helped him load everything in the trailer and then we went home. But, you know, cars were, were everything to mm. me. You weren't afraid, uh, you and Kim, to sort of to take a punt, to have a go. So in joining the dots here to get to car racing, what was the first road car, the very first car you ever got, and then the first race car? Okay, well, my dad had a lot of nice road cars. Mm-hmm. Um, being a car dealer, you know, he had Porsches for a while because he was a Porsche dealer because yep. we were friends with the Hamiltons and, mm-hmm. and Alan Hamilton was, was – um, dad was the only regional Porsche dealer in the country. Mm-hmm. So, um, Kim's first car was a, a 850 Mini, which he cut the front off and put a fiberglass front on it and just <laughs> destroyed. And then I had a HT Holden. And then and what would happen is uh, Dad would trade a car and it'd be an old car some old guy had and we'd just destroy it, really. And, and so, but the HT had a, you know, put a 161, three on the tree. So, I put a 186 on it and tripled the Lordos and, awesome. you know, a camshaft you couldn't get over. And then it had no heater in it. And then I'd use that to turn my bikes to the races. But up until that, I had a mechanic that used to take me racing. And so, but, but that was, you know, that was when I was let loose a little bit. Yep. When you had the financial troubles, how much did that set things back for you from a, a racing point of view? And how hard was that? Um, well, I hadn't really started racing cars mm. and, and he went broke, but it changed a lot of things in my life. You know, we went from being quite a comfortable family mm-hmm. to, to living in a unit and and um and struggling you know my mum had gotten sick and she couldn't work and dad didn't have a job really and he went back into the car trade and i was running a panel shop which was a nightmare i was a you know 18 year old kid Did you call I, it bsr was it brad brad jones smash repairs or something what'd you call um, it it it, 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 did, it ended up being oh i can't even remember <laughs> brad jones auto care or something okay yeah keep going um and so he came and worked for me and yeah. so Frank Gardner said to me one day, you know, um, Dad and Frank were very, very close. Had a good relationship, didn't they? And, yeah. And uh, Frank said, why don't you get Dad to work for you and generate some business for you? So I'm like, oh, yeah, I mean, we have such a good relationship. Mm. So he did and he used to get us a pile of work. And I think near the end of my years as a, a spray painter or a panel shop owner, you know, we had maybe 10 people working there. Wow. But it was a nightmare. I used to, I was hopeless at managing people. Um, you know, I was 
20 I started it when I was 19 with another local guy who was a spray painter and and um, got out of it at 25 or 26 or something and, and honestly they were probably the worst years of my life were they were you sworn off it then because as we sit here now I mean you've been in this building that I'm talking to you in for quite for quite some time I think even mm. uh, Malibu boats started here way back in the day I yeah, think didn't they just so, next door in one yeah. of the sheds where the cars are yeah. so um the what, what happened was Kim Kim drifted in and out of a few jobs and things and so um we started with formal Fords mm-hmm. and Chris Davison came along and I, I raced Kim's car at a race meeting. I mean, I used to flog around here in cars and we used to race around at night. And, you know, just <laughs> Testing. Crazy, 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 crazy stuff that you could never get away with now. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we were actually looking for cops to chase us. <laughs> um, so you couldn't, you couldn't do any of that stuff nowadays. And, um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the, 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 the driving of the cars probably came a little bit late. I mean, Kim was always interested in driving cars. I can remember we went to a sprint meeting out of the Humea and I was in the car with my mum and dad and then Kim had gone out with a couple of other guys and they had a Volkswagen Beetle. They cut the body off. And um, I can remember this, this car came into view around the S's and my mum was quite prim and proper. Uh, my dad's driving, we're in a 132 Fiat. And um, my mum says, oh, my God, Philip." Look at that little boy driving that car. <laughs> Who would be silly enough to let their, their little son drive that? And as, as the car went past us, Kim turned and waved. Awesome. And, and that stifled his career for a while. <laughs> she got Dad to drag him out of that thing and he, I don't reckon he got behind a wheel again for a while. But, um, you know, we, we, Kim kept the Formula Ford. Dad was really, you know, he had a great group of friends who, who really helped them and they put, put together a little group that helped pay, make the payments on Kim's car because it was, um, it was on, on finance. And, mm-hmm. and Kim started racing that and, you know, like well, I'd come along and help but I'm no help because I'm not much of a mechanic. But Kimmy would race that and then I had a race in at um, – Winton in it. it was my first race like a state round I mm-hmm. raced against Chris Davison and Kim had raced before that and and um anyway Chris saw something in me and decided to help me so he organized for me to buy the um go and test the 002 Elfin Elwin sorry that um Wally Story oh fantastic and, and Elwin yeah. Bickley built and so we we went along and and um bought that on finance and and um, but Chris organised Bisley Mineral Water as a sponsor, and he came to the races, and that was the start of my relationship with Wally Story and all those guys, because that was like the really clicky, fast former Ford click. And and um, you know, I, honestly, I was lazy, like you couldn't believe. And I can remember going out to Amaru once and forgetting my driving suit, leaving it back at Brad Haywood, who's made of mine used to race sprint cars, but I left. <laughs> And and it was like an hour and a half's drive, and so I I missed practice, and I was just stupid and and young, and didn't understand enough about it. But as the years went by, I I sort of worked it out eventually. It must have been a level of natural ability that that people picked up on. I mean, there was a good yarn that you told Noons about Kevin Bartlett, you know, and your, your some of your early recollections of of him and and almost trying to outbreak each other and winking across at him or something along those lines. He became uh, another figure that would would um, sort of be in the background and, and and help you along the way, wouldn't he? Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting. I was always um, bitter is the wrong word. Hmm. I, frustrated is is a better word. I was a bit frustrated. We knew so many people in motorsport. Anyone who was anyone really was was I, I could 
find my way to them. Mm-hmm. But to get help from them was not easy mm. and and frustrating. And and um, and so Chris Davison was good with a former Ford and then I had an accident in it and at that point in my life, I wanted to, I, you know, I wanted to go race motorbikes in Europe now and a lot of my friends were road racing and doing really well and and so I wanted to, to race cars and so I um, had to make a, a bit further down the road about a difficult decision to get out of my panel shop and, and change my life and, and go off and go racing but trying to get help when you had no money and, mm. and was, was hard and then the whole thing was hard. I know people think it's hard now, but um, it was just as hard then, if you ask me, in lots of ways. And so, so working through that was was tough. So I raced the Formula Ford. I remember coming back. Jack Brabham had just moved back to Australia, and he had a place at Wagga, and I was, you know, had a lot to do with Gary. Um, you know, he used to come and spend the weekends here. And so Jack, uh, I remember he rang once and. Dad was out, you know, talking to someone into getting their car fixed. And I said, oh, it's a phone call for you, Dad. And he goes, tell him I'll call back. I said, it's Jack Brabham. And this is when Jack had just moved back here. Fantastic. And he's like, and this woman was like, who, who is it? And, oh, my God, you better get that phone call. He goes, ah, tell him I'll call him back. This is more important. So, so um, you know, we had a, a good group. Anyway, I can remember we were somewhere and sort of Jack had been uh, lurking around and Frank Gardner was there and Frank was very close to Dad and, I told him I wanted to go to Europe and race cars, race on my Fords. And first question he asked me was how much money you got? And I said, well, not a lot. You know, I can wreck my car. I'll probably get 10 grand when I sell that. And, and he goes, son, you'd be totally wasting your time. Go over there. You might go all right, might not. He said, you run out of money, you come back, you'll be burnt out. you never race a car in your life. Again, stay here and work at it. And this is your best opportunity because to make it over there is almost impossible which I didn't really understand at the time. And so I was like, oh, that's pretty disappointing. Mm. I thought I'd go over there and someone would see my talent and give me a bit of a hand. Mm. But, it, you know, but I stayed here and, and it sort of worked out. I mean, it was, a, it was a crazy life. Very quickly, Kim, Kim has always been working on my cars. And, and so certainly with Chris Davison, he, he didn't like that. And so he'd make Kim park at one end of the pit area, me, me park down the other. Kim had all the tools. I didn't know what I was doing. And so then we had to hire a mechanic. So it was... It was, it was a bit weird, but Kim Moore is intertwined in all that sort of stuff, mm. especially, especially racing. And, and then um, uh, I got the opportunity to go and test the Mercedes that Brian Thompson and Peter Fowler, well, Peter Fowler owned at that point in time. And, and then I got to race that for a few years and that was, you know, crazy going from a Formula Ford to a sports sedan. Awesome car in various guises or iterations. It was a very, very cool thing, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it was. It was and, and fast, you know, and, and it, like at the end when it had twin turbo ra- engines in it, we raced it at Sandown against all those Porsches that came out mm. for the World Endurance Championship. I mean, it was as fast as those things in a straight line. Crazy. You'd break it 300 and they'd break it 50, so okay. that was a bit unnerving. But, but, um, but you know, it, it was – we suffered a little bit from from reliability issues, and so that was that was difficult. But but you know, got to the end, and Pete ran out of money, and and so then um, I was sort of done, and and I still had the panel shop, and it was a it was one of those pivotal points in my life, and and um, my dad, you know, in those days he was driving around a Valiant station wagon. And he'd rung Alan Horsley, who was a secretary yes. of the, the car yeah. club in Albury, but Mazda he ran Oran Park yeah, and yeah. he ran Mazda after yeah. that, the racing team there. And so 
um, Horsley said to him, you should get into production car racing if that kid's got any talent. He'll go, okay. And so dad went, great. He goes, Where, where's it on? And he said, well, we've got a big race coming up. It's a pro-am event. Um, Peter Fitzgerald's entered in the pal Colestarian, but he's got Peter Hopwood with him. We're going to knock him back because there'll be two pros. And um, maybe you can get a drive with him. So he said that, coincidentally, they're racing this weekend at Amaru Park. So my dad rang the, the tyre. He stopped them all along the road yeah, along the stopped, way, didn't he? Pulled him mm-hmm. off. That's right. Mm-hmm. Pulled him off the road, talked him into it, and we had to pay five grand. And uh, honestly, we didn't have five bucks. So my dad went off and did a deal with the local radio station for two and a half grand's worth of airtime and sold it and mm-hmm. generated two and a half grand. And then he put a little consortium of his friends together and they tipped in the other two and a half grand. And, and then away we went. I, I went and drove the car with Fitzy. We won the race. And, um, and then we were trying to work out what we could do next. So um, I got a loan and bought a Starion. Then we went to Class Headers, which were based in Aubrey, and did a sponsorship deal. So if my dad did the deal. I just went in and tried to help, which you know, wasn't much help at all. And then Kim worked on the car because he'd had a bike accident and injured his knee. And so that started it, really. He worked on the car. I drove the car. And, and we went okay. The first uh, round of the Super Series, which Bob Jane put on, um, you know, we, we, we were one of the strong, strong runners. The, the connection there with Mitsubishi would actually be quite a significant thing in, in your four-wheel career, sort of really sort of cementing and taking off, would it not? Am I right in, in oh, sort yeah, of no, saying ab- that? Absolutely. Mm. And so um, that's, you know, I'd met Kevin at that mm. Pro-Am event and he took a bit of a shine to me and, and he told me he was building helping build the factory team and then they took it off him a little bit and and got bob and john murphy to build the cars in adelaide and a guy called john grant run it and um and they hired me and so you know off i went and and uh for me i was very determined very single-minded still probably a little bit lazy but um uh, just you know drove drove the race car so um, I drove at Bathurst in 85 and, and um, Fitzy and I drove together and KB drove with Peter McKay and um, I ended up qualifying the car 11th um, and, and KB was like just a fraction in front of me um, 10th and, and Fitzy and KB had an accident, they didn't like each other and they had an accident at the first corner which made their relationship worse which was good for me because um, um, they were impressed with what I'd done over the over the days prior to the race and then I, I became part of the factory team really. People ask about the Starion when we get some listener questions. I mean you did from a, the production car guys to the what was it effectively group A guys I suppose wasn't it. What were those things like to drive? Well what's I mean people don't do it now but you know I would race the production car uh, and get out of it and then go and get in the, you know, Tomo's Monza or his mm. Benz and do the sports sedan race and then get out of that and then go back and get in the Starion and race that. And racing the Group A Starion and the production gas Starion, which I did for a long time until John, uh, uh, Shepard um, stopped me. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, one was a left hooker and the other one was a right. Mm-hmm. And so... So it was George Shepard. Um, yes, one was a right and one was a left hooker. So you get out of one. I remember racing at Amory Park that just finished a race in the Group A car. I ran down pit lane, jumped in the passenger seat of the production car and went, <laughs> oops. So, but, but they, you know, they were unbelievable times. You know, you look back. I used to go racing. Kim would do all the work. I'd drive the car and then we'd take a bunch of friends with us and, and it, was, it was just quite amazing. You know, we'd... we'd 
It was a really cool way to grow up and you got to see a lot of your friends and, yeah, it was great. I don't know if anyone's been driving around Melbourne recently, but boy, oh boy, are the roadworks really going on right now. Watch out for those 40 zones, folks, and stay safe. Took you to Asia too, and I think I could be wrong. I'm maybe not uh, recounting this story quite right, but I think KB told me about you meeting maybe some Japanese Mitsubishi hierarchy for the first time. There was a meal, and and um, and you were not because I, I know you just simple steak and oh. veg and love it. You were not keen on any of the Japanese food I, <laughs> or the Asian food, whatever it was. I, I n- had never been, hardly been in an aeroplane. Like I'd, <laughs> I'd um. Uh, so, so and I remember I bought a video recorder and you had to take it out of the co- – I thought you had to take it out of the country yeah. to buy it duty-free. I've never worked so hard for 100 bucks in my life. You know, like I had to cart this thing everywhere I went. And then the first day we were there, we went and, – and honestly, in those days, I ate steak and chips and it, that was pretty much it. Toast and Vegemite, and, but pretty much steak and chips. And um, we turned up and, and if I ate anything else – it would, you know, I'd bring it back up again. Like yeah. it's, it's been a real nuisance my whole life. And so it's fine when I've got my brother with me because he's like a garbage disposal. He'll eat anything. And so he would eat his food and then we just swap plates. <laughs> and so, so what happened was I was racing the production car at Amaru Park and um, the Japanese, unbeknownst to me, had sent someone out to watch me race and, and I really dominated the first two rounds. And... Um, um, then this guy came up with a business card and you know told me who he was and I'm like who are you really and and he and then we we struck a deal so um, they came out to, and did the deal with me and then KB and I went and raced at um, at Fuji for the first time so we were in in um, Dave Brody in the, from the UK made the factory stallions um, which were <laughs> sports sedans and so we went up there and they had uh, he had a Japanese driver with him. Um, KB and I were in the car and then a couple of Chinese drivers in the other one. So it was, a, it was you know, I can remember um, the first practice session was pouring with rain. All the best drivers in Europe were there. So it was a really big deal. And um, so, you know, I, I, one, I couldn't eat the food and KB's like, eat it, eat it, eat it. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I, I can't eat it. And then, and then I'm sweating like crazy. I mean, it was a bit of raw fish, a tree leaf, and I don't know what else was on the plate. It was green and it didn't look like it was edible, even though everyone else was seemed to be tucking into it. So I'm like, I'm pushing it around and, and Bob Riley's like, eat it, just eat it. And I'm like, I'll throw it up and that'll be even more embarrassing. And then, and then um, Katani, who is a, who's, you know, he and Mr. Connor Katani were, were hosting the function. And so then they like, oh, you don't, you know, I said, just like a, if I could have a cooked steak, you know, they brought out a stew and I'm thinking to myself, I never said stew. <laughs> I said steak. Steak is pretty simple. Medium to well done steak. So then I'm trying to pick the meat out of the stew. Oh, I was just, makes me sweat thinking about it now. So it was, it was difficult. And then we get to the racetrack. And, and in those days, it was, uh, I think they used to pay charge $5,000 for 30 minutes of practice. It was, oh. it was crazy. And so it was wet. And so I'm standing there and KB's like, what are you doing? And I said, Oh, uh, nothing. I'm um, just um, waiting for you to uh, jump in the car. And he's like, well, get dressed and get in. Oh, I'm in first. Yeah. 
So I'm in the car. It's pissing with rain. So I'm out running around and I come in after, you know, three or four laps and I start to hop out. And he's like, what are you doing? I'm getting out. And he's like, I'll tell you when to get out. Okay. So, you know, I'm banging around and, and, and starting to go all right. The next session, I'm, at least I'm standing there in my gear. And he's like, get in. And I went, okay, still raining. So I'm in, belled around and getting pretty comfortable and going pretty fast. And, you know, we were looking pretty competitive. And then by the third session, still pouring with rain. I just didn't even ask, got in the car, off I went, smashed it out. And we were really, I'm, you know, from competitive. I remember we were quite competitive. And then uh, next day, uh, I would roll into the garage with my, with my suit on and uh, didn't ask anything, jumped in the car. It's still wet, but it's almost dry. You know, it's like just drizzling. And so... Um, I'm, I bell around, I do about three or four laps, I come firing into the pits and I'm on the radio. Um, it's dry enough for slicks. And I pull up and KB flings the door open and goes, get out. <laughs> <laughs> you were just the wet weather driver. I'm like, huh? oh. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, mind you, I, I joke about that. but And he's he was always hard, but really, really good to me. Like, awesome. He was fantastic to me. You know, through my career, lots of people, when I reflect have have um, have been an important part of helping my growth and getting me to where I was. But but him helping me get that opportunity made a big difference to my life and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. What are the biggest kind of lessons from a legend like that? What do you reckon was the big takeaway from Kevin Bartlett? Don't get drunk the night before you're racing. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he, he was... Uh, he was one of the old school guys. Mm. I mean, when you think about it, as big a joke as that might be, um, you know, I, we went to Macau and I'd had a really hard night on the on the grog and he made me do a track walk. Like that joint's like, I don't know how many kilometres it's around, yeah. but it's like a lot. It's like it's like walking around the outskirts of Melbourne for one full lap. It felt like it went forever, <laughs> especially with the hangover. And I don't drink normally. So he, he would just... Uh, you know, a lot of people would look back and go, old guys, you know, heading towards the end of their career. But he was just really helpful. You know, mm. he was he was hard but fair with me and, and I couldn't ask for a better mentor, to be honest. He was he was really good. Made me eat shit I didn't like. <laughs> but um, he was he was great to me. He was really good. Are you starting at this point to feel comfortable like I can maybe make a life out of this a full-time you know you're going international you're seeing you know some some star drivers that you're racing against or was it still a bit you know paycheck to paycheck oh uh, well kim and i had had our little business going on the side which paid for his his life and then i would go off and do this and that's how i'd make a living mm-hmm. and and um by now i was thinking, you know i'd raced against some of the best uh european drivers in the world mm. And, and, you know, I was – I mean, the following year was more of a, a light bulb moment for me, if I'm honest. I, I got to um, race up – I raced in the domestic championship, so I got um, – I was racing here in Australia, so Doug Stewart had, had started to get involved in my program and I had no – I wasn't – you know, it's so much money, but back in those days you don't really realise. Anyway, um, it didn't work out. They They – I was probably a bit too well connected to the Japanese mm-hmm. and and not what they wanted and you know they were they clearly wanted Tony Stewart in the uh, what was he? Talk, um, Scott Tony, Tony Scott, Scott in the mm-hmm. car and so 
it just didn't work out. You know, I, I drove as far as I could, but I was probably a bit of a handful on the other side of that. But I just, you know, if they could separate me from, from that deal, that was better for them, I reckon. And, and uh, Doug was very well connected with Rally Art and everyone had a high regard for him and, mm. and he sold me the dream and and um, wasn't quite quite didn't quite work out that way so then the Japanese still uh, had had uh, held my me in good good stead yeah, yeah I guess yeah. I'm trying to no, you're playing it down keep going trying yeah. to find the right words mm. but they offered me a job up there and then so I'd fly up and um, and race in their domestic championship and that was for me really good because I was in the clearly in the second car but I was able to go as fast as the two lead drivers in their car. And, and so I was paid and looked after by um, the marketing department, a guy called Mr. Kondo, who he was very fond of me and looked after me really well. And then uh, Katani-san owned the cars, but he'd spent so much money on the rally program he couldn't actually fund the racing of them. So he used Kondo's money to – so the deal was you had to take the, you know, the little boy from Australia. <laughs> and so they didn't like it. And so it was the first time I'd ever – really experienced you know racial tension mm. and as and against myself which is you know you mm. just don't yeah it's not and so but it was good for me uh you know i went up there and raced and and was you know found my feet and learned that i could race against the you know some of the best guys certainly in the country um up there and and do quite well and then at the end of the year, um, I raced in the Starion with Nakaya, but we, we raced against uh, Tom Walkinshaw, turned up with two Jags. The factory Volvos were there, Grice was there, um, Brock was there. Super, yeah. All Snitzer were there, mm. all the very best of the best mm. and and um, qualified second. Super. Yeah, so it was, you know, and that was probably more of my moment of, okay, that's the light bulb moment you were well, talking was, about. Or? Yeah, it was yeah. just it was, you know, it was a it was a pretty cool moment for me. By then, I was starting to get a bit agitated that I couldn't get a, a drive in Australia mm-hmm. in stuff, but I could go up there and and um, you know it was, what was unfortunate was um, the Sierra came along soon after that and it really changed motorsport, touring car motorsport around the world. Certainly in Japan, Mitsubishi felt that. The Starion would never be a match for it. And so they went from offering me an opportunity to race in touring cars, mirages, and help fund me into an F3 program to, um, to nothing. You know, I was back back here. Mm. So so that was sort of disappointing. But but it was, uh, you know, like things happen for a reason and, and good things and bad things. And so that was, uh, that was a, a, you know, I look back at, at that part of my life, and and um, yeah, it was it was special. You mentioned Brock. When was the first time that you met him? I met Brock as a kid. Mm. Um, I can remember we were at Oran Park, and they had used to have a big party on a Sunday night after a race meeting, and I was there with my dad, and um, Brock wanted to meet Jack Brabham, and he was all over my dad about, and and um, he he was very young. And so that was my first real memory of him. But I, you know, I knew that he'd raced. I knew most of the cars that raced at the Hume Weir, and I remember the, the him coming down and competing. But um, that's probably a pretty strong memory for me. And then, then of course, when I started racing, um, Crompton 
and I, I've always, you know, we've been close friends for a long time, and and um, he he was racing production cars, and then he got more involved with Brock, and and um, through all the uh, you know the stuff that was going on in the late eighties, you know, I sort of tagged into the back end of that. I love the story Neil shared it when he came on the podcast about you two <laughs> playing playing a double act when he wanted to get out from Brock's for an opportunity, I think, at, at HRT, wasn't it? Yeah. And then, and then, just quote-unquote fortuitously, you happened to be around the corner, didn't Yeah, you? well, I, I picked him up from the airport to take him to quit. <laughs> so, so we formulated that plan, you know, and because, uh, you know, in those days when we were driving for different people, we would, um, uh, what we would do um, is charge them both for a motel room and then we'd share a motel room split and it. then we'd split the money. Mm. So, so you know, we were, you know, best of friends like we are now and so we do a lot of things together. And and uh, so anyway, he told me that he was going to – and by then I'd had a lot to do with Brock and Brock loved hanging around with – so did Gal um, – with Crompton and I because we were crazy and loose and they loved that part of, you know, knocking mm. around with someone in their 20s. And so, so – um, uh, Crompton's, you know, a bit straighter than me. And so then when I appeared, you know, it was between... So, so I spent a lot of time with with the three of them and and build a build a relationship with them. And, and, and um, then Crompton, of course, decided that he wanted to get out of the BMWs. Um, Arch McMurray, who was building my engines in the Oscar, worked at Brock's at the time. And so... Um, um, we just we just end up with a bit of a relationship really and and so but but it grew strong really quickly so brock i guess um when when crompton quit he came he, you know i dropped him off he walked in i was parked around the corner came back and then he got out i, w- I went in and and said to gal and brock hey what's going on and they're like crompton was just here he's quit and i went you're kidding <laughs> really wow that's no good so what are you gonna do <laughs> i don't know <laughs> I've got an idea. <laughs> so I did a deal with him on the spot. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I've always – I mean, Gal and I are still friends and, you know, I've got it they're, – they're, he was he was fantastic. You know, I at least stayed his place from time to time and still go and see him when I was in the UK, when I was over there. So um, then I walked back around the corner, jumped in the car with Neil and he goes, do you get the job? And I went, yep. And he goes, okay – Let's go over to HRT. I'll introduce you to Creno. You'll probably end up driving for him at some point in time. So, okay, let's go. So, over we went to HRT. But I was trying to get that drive at HRT. And, mm-hmm. and so, um, when Tom had raced at... Um, in Japan there. In Japan, yeah. mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd tried to get hold of him. And I was shy, you know, like mm. I'd, I'd been to... Um, I tried to get a driver with Howard Mars and a test, which helped me a test, and I, I couldn't attend because my feet got so badly sunburned I couldn't wear any boots. And and then Glenn Seaton got the drive pretty much straight away, so not saying it just, mm. just didn't work out. And um, uh, and then John Shepard, who had the factory Volvo team, um, it took me – I remember I sat in the car for like three hours staring you know, at Amaru Park trying to work up the balls to go over and ask him if I could have an opportunity to – test the car. I remember I walked over and I said, oh, oh, hi, hi, Mr. Shepard, I'm Brad Jones. Yep, yeah, I know you are. I just wonder if there's ever any opportunity if I could maybe test your car for a co-drive. And he goes, there's no chance. And I went, uh, okay, thank you. Thank you for your time. 
I went back and sat in the car and went, wow. And for a kid, um, that, that, you know, it just was very, very, mm. very, very difficult. And, and I was, I wouldn't say I was shy, but I had a lot of trouble going to someone I didn't know and, and asking for an opportunity. It was it's it 180 difficult. of the Brad Jones I now know, mate. Yeah, because... I'm a very different person now to who mm. I was then. But that's why anytime anyone, I, you know, always give young guys advice, always try and help young people. And mm. not often can I give them something except good advice. And so I always try and do that. I don't care who you are. If you ask me if I can help, and I can, I do. And I certainly, if I can't help you, and when I say help, I give you some advice. Mm. Um, I, I always try and, and do this stuff. I mean, Howard Marsden was great. I went and had a meeting with him. Um, you know, I was always worried about my association with my brother and my father. Everyone saw we came as a, um, you know, triplets. Mm. And, <laughs> and, but, you know, I was trying to make my way. But it was, it was hard. Asking mm. people to give you an opportunity was a really difficult thing for me. And so I struggled through that. I, I, I want to continue on the Brock thing, but, but you've gone just down a path that I, I would like oh, to explore. So let me just finish with please. one story. Yeah, so, so I tried to get hold of Tom to get that drive. Mm. I couldn't get him. And, and so clearly this is before the Brock thing. So I was also racing against him a cow. So they decided um, they'd done a good job at, at – at, um, <laughs> At Japan, they sent me down to Macau. So I'm like, cool. So I go down there. So I try and find Tom. I go over to the garage. I hang around. Can't find him anywhere. I'm like, oh, man, he needs to know me. Like, he knows who I am. Clearly, he said hello to me. Hi, laddie. So uh, I get it. I decided to get in the lift. So we're staying at a three. I know he's staying there. We're just going up and down the lift. Yeah, for 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, so so I, I got in the lift. And um, on Sunday morning, I was starting to get really desperate because I knew Crompton was talking to them about getting a drive. <laughs> and I thought, if he knows I'm available, that'll be me in that thing. So I get in the lift at about uh, 7.15 in the morning and, I, and there's only two lifts. So I'm like, I've got a 50% chance of getting him. He's got to come down for breakfast. And I stay in the lift and I go up and down, up and down, up and down for 30 minutes. And it gets to, gets to quarter to eight and I'm like, damn, I missed him. He must have gone down the other lift. So I'm... I'm sort of downtrodden. I'm standing the lift. I'm looking at my feet. And I'm like, well, I'll get out as soon as it goes down. So, bing, third door opens. Whoosh, doors fly open. In walks Tom. So, I'm so, I just, I, he goes, hi, laddie. And I went, uh, h- hello. He froze. And then, bing, the doors open. He walks out. <laughs> and I stayed in there for about another two trips going up and down. I was sweating like crazy. Massively disappointed with myself. And then, of course, you know, that was my missed opportunity. But I got to meet him later and, and uh, you know, he's a pretty pretty intense guy but I, I always felt I had a pretty good relationship with Tom. That, that's a great word that you bring up because I think with you, you have so many long-term relationships from so many aspects of your career that you you have kept and continue to have even if you're not with that, that sponsor or that manufacturer or, or whatever it might be. So what is it on the commercial side that you eventually latched onto or if you had all those those nerves that you're talking about there before at what point did you unlock that side and realize right that that's that's going to be my area of in addition to the driving that you'd have to, to well there was a couple of things that made a big difference i had a really bad breakup when i stopped driving at hrt with mm-hmm. john crennan and what i learned from that was you just whether you're right or wrong having having such a a terrible relationship on the way out the door is is no good no good mm. and so um that you know i felt we probably both contributed pretty significantly to that Have john you... mightn't agree but i'm certainly of that opinion is it better now 
Uh, I never see him. So, but, but you know, I think we both were left with a pretty bad taste in our mouths. Mm-hmm. And um, um, so, yeah, so, and, and the other thing is... Um, it doesn't cost anything to be nice and, and you've got to work hard with sponsors to keep them. Hmm. And honestly, from the minute we started racing, the only way I could ever survive was with other people's help. And so when you're in that position and you don't have any money, hmm. um, you you really appreciate what they can do for you and you try and do as much as you can for them. Hmm. And really, that's the way it's been here forever. Hmm. Did it organically happen that Kim, you know, when you ultimately had your, your, your own uh, race team as, as, as brothers, did he sort of look after one aspect of the business and you focused on the other or were you both, you know? When it worked best, yeah. he built the cars mm-hmm. and I drove them. Okay. And, and when he retired, um, remember we wrote the press release mm-hmm. and I was sitting in a motel in, in Sydney and, and was quite emotional actually uh, thinking back over the years because I think my line was um, um, together in everything but supercars we dominated at worst you know we, we, we and always felt it was Kim and I against the world world and yeah. and um, we were very very successful and so he had a good understanding of what I wanted out of a car mm. and um, but most people would see that the way we'd bicker and fight hmm. and and not understand that was just, you know, our way of communicating. Yeah. And so then, you know, he he stopped for whatever reason when we um, when we started racing Audis and, and but you know, still hmm. I was successful. But, you know, the really, really successful stuff was um, when he was um, when he was building cars for me. Hmm. I, I love my brother. We're both very different people, right? Uh when you add the, Sounds like me. But, but when you, where I'm going here is you're next level here because you're playing in elite sport and you're running a business together that involves a lot of people. Does that... Not in those days. It was but, just but, me and uh, him. Ultimately, okay, ultimately. But, but, but me and him, a green van, a white trailer and a production yeah. car or an Oscar. Did it get testy as, as oh, brothers? Yeah, we, were, we would fight. And so if you ask someone like Kelvin O'Reilly, he would say to you... Last thing you want to do is get between the Joneses when they're having a blue because then they both gang up on you. <laughs> so, you know, we can talk to each other like shit, but when you start talking like that to us, then, hmm. you know, we're on to you. So, look, it was, it was you know, I, I would push him really hard mm-hmm. and um, and sometimes that would work good and sometimes it wouldn't and, you know, but we, we're also very different people. Cool. Yeah. And, and um do you miss him being around and does he miss being a part of it? Uh, I don't think he – I think if you asked him, he wouldn't mm. miss being a part of it. You know, mm. he he was looking to stop for a long time. Mm-hmm. And um, um, and for me, it's it's just – it's different now. But, mm. yeah, I'm more than comfortable with it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we still talk. and But but this is at a, a different place, place now. now. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, I, I enjoy having full control over what's going on and – in BJ, mm. at BJR, and and he he enjoys not having to go to work every day, yeah. and so it took a. It was hard at the start because we've seen each other every day for you know forty or fifty years, mm. and and so. Um, but you know he was at a time where he wanted to stop, and it took me a long time to see that. Mm. But and and I was nervous about doing it by myself, mm. but you know it's it's worked out okay, and it's given me an opportunity to involve my family a little bit more. So you know my. Part of me, eldest daughter works here. My son's here every day, and um, you know life's pretty good. 
Let's loop back to Brock, if we can. What was it like being around him? In that, I mean, you talked about the fun that you brought to the table, Alan Gow, who you're still a great friend with. Um, what was it? I mean, he was such a massive figure in Australian motorsport. Did you were you not thinking about that sort of stuff, or were you in awe of that kind of thing? What was what was sort of the early Brock stuff? Well, like? I can only probably give you the G-rated stuff. <laughs> Okay, this is a family show. Do your best, walk up to the line. So, but I had a good relationship with him. So mm. when, when I went to, I mean, I've got a bit of a quirky sense of humour. Yes. And, and, you know, I was a bit, like I said, loose when I was younger. But in those days, um, you know, got to know Brock. It started when we went down to his place to finish building our Oscar mm-hmm. and Kim and I really looked for classes of racing where the prize money was exceptional because yep. that's how we lived. And such a wa- I mean, it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and so we missed like the first year of that and then we turned up, we went and saw Arch McMurray and got him to build the engine and then he asked Brock if we could finish building our car there for our first race, which was a Christmas event. Yep. So um, we got down there and Brock, you know, you know he just appears and... Um, yeah, what's this? What's that? And we're talking away, and I just struck up a really good relationship with him, and and um, you know really respected him, what he could do as a driver, mm. and and learn a lot about him. But I had had the rise and fall of Peter Brock in my pocket when I first started going there all the time, because you know I'd meet someone, and then I'd go into the toilet and I'd read about him in Tucky's book to see <laughs> see you know what they were into and. Whether they were believers study, or non-believers, study, and, yeah, yeah. So it was it was quite interesting, but but um, you know he he was an amazing guy, mm. and and when you think about it, and and I always said you know like I could tell you some really cool stuff. This sort of reflect our relationship. Yep. Uh, so, so I'll tell you two stories. I, I was sitting well, when we were racing Super Touring at Bathurst. Bruce McAvaney had to go in the studio in Sydney, and so Bruce and I are doing an interview in Brox. Northern Territory somewhere, um, Dale Springs, I know, he's in a buggy or he's doing something crazy. And so, you know, I'm calling Brock. So it's like, so Bradley, how do you think you're going to go at Bathurst? And I'm like, well, Brock, I reckon. So we get to the end of the interview and Bruce goes, uh, why, uh, why is it you call Peter Brock? And I said, I don't know, uh, term of endearment. <laughs> he goes, well, that's unusual for an endearment term to be their last name. And I'm like... Uh, I don't know, Bruce. <laughs> but that's, you know, like that was the relationship we had. And then and then he was um, – I took him for a, a lap around Bathurst in the Audi. Yep. And, you know, you, if you look at the interviews, it's like, well, you know, Bradley's going to drive me around. Let's hope he doesn't drive too hard, you know. So we get in the car and we're driving down pit lane. He's got an face helmet on. And he looks across at me and he says, um, nothing to prove here, Bradley. <laughs> and I looked across at him and I said, want to bet? <laughs> I said, I find it ironic that the fastest lap you're ever going to do around Bathurst is in the passenger seat next to me. This is gold. I can't believe they're catching this on television. And man, he's, you know, but, but he, you know, he loved that crazy, Mm. you know, that crazy side. And, and we had some, you know, he, he would, when we were building the, the Oscar, he would drop in with a cup of tea and, you know, chat to everyone. Just, just the way he was. Mm. We'll yeah. come back to the Oscar stuff in a second. I, I sense with Crompo that he, he exhausted just about every bit of emotional energy around the the amazing words that he delivered at the funeral and things like that. And he doesn't often, you know, when people have approached him about being a part of a Brock documentary or something, he doesn't gravitate to a lot of that stuff. I, I think he compartmentalised it and 
you know, loves still loves Brock dearly. How did his passing affect you, mate? What was the, the impact? Oh, I was at Calder Park doing an Audi Drive Day hmm. and, um, uh, you know, and it, it just reduced me to tears. It was, uh, hmm. it was uh, you know, I remember exactly where I was. I remember I, can, I was standing on the main straight hmm. and uh, I couldn't believe it. Um, but... You know, it's 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 uh, and and honestly, Neil did an amazing job, job that day. Amazing, yeah. Yep. And um, you know, it's 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 it was just a very sad day. But but um, you know, I think those tarmac rallies and stuff. Hmm. The, the the thing is, it's a little like water skiing and snow skiing. Mm-hmm. So you you can be a great water ski doesn't instantly mean you're going to be a great snow, snow skier. Yeah. Mm. And then you go and do a tarmac rally and then you're relying on someone giving you the advice of what the corner is and mm. reading the road. And, and like road racers, they train for years to be able to do that stuff. And mm. I always felt like Peter would drive the car very, very hard at those events. And, you know, it was just, just a very sad mm. way for, for, for Brock to finish up. the end of part one of my podcast with racer turned supercars team owner brad jones a special episode in our library all brought to you as part of a great partnership with pizza hut now there is a second part all loaded up in the rusty's garage library and ready for you to enjoy right now so fire it up and hit the gas when you're ready another hour of insightful stories brad tells them so well and there is more laughs to come too from Barry Sheen's test in the Brock Sierra to going backstage at a Phil Collins concert. Memories of racing at the Thunderdome, stitching together a deal with Audi to race their iconic two-litre Super Tourers, plus his friendship with Neil Crompton, some classic tales there, and the potential he saw in Jason Richards before JR's battle with cancer really took hold, sadly, and the car that evokes the strongest memory for him. You may be surprised which one he picks. Listener.